This is Archive Atlanta, episode 187, Mosley Park. You're listening to Archive Atlanta, a history podcast where each week I'll be sharing a story about the people, places, and events that shape the history of the city of Atlanta. I'm your host, local tour guide, and total history nerd, Victoria Lemos. Hey everyone, happy Friday. This week we're finally doing another neighborhood episode and it's all about Mosley Park. Its place in Atlanta's history is for being the first neighborhood in the city to experience white flight, but there's so much more. So today we're covering everything from Civil War to Battle Hill to its namesake to domestic terrorism um, to famous residents and some houses. So before we start, I've kind of given you some idea, but Mosley Park is a triangular-ish shaped neighborhood with MLK Jr. Drive um, on the north and then I-20 and the Beltline kind of containing it. And I talked about this in the Grove Park episode, but areas west of Atlanta post-native removal um, and either before the Civil War or even after the Civil War. And I'm when I say West Atlanta, I'm talking like one mile from the center of the city. They were very rural and undeveloped until the 20th century. So what would become Mosley Park was described as, quote, sparsely populated area three miles from Atlanta, end quote, famous for a role in a civil war battle. The Battle of Ezra Church took place in July of 1864, and it was the third Confederate attack on Union forces as they closed in on Atlanta. The battle lines formed kind of a U-shape that encompassed the now Sadie Mays Rehab Center, uh, the Standon Elementary, and then down into Mosley Park. There's a very extensive marker describing this battle inside Mosley Park, if you've ever been there, off MLK Drive. So in the post-war era, the neighborhood is called Battle Hill, or this area is called Battle Hill, in reference to that history. Battle Hill built a school in 1894, and the Battle Hill Land Company spearheaded a lot of the development. Like a lot of Westside neighborhoods, they touted their elevation and clear air um, from the city. This is like verbatim from an 1892 ad. It says, quote, Three miles due west stands 73 feet higher than Atlanta, overlooking the city with her smoke, dust, and heats, and foul air emitted from hundreds of open sewer mouths, end quote. They said the air in the city was offensive and poisonous, and Battle Hill was clean and clear, and that because the winds came in from the west, it pushed everything bad eastward. There was also a Battle Hill streetcar line that initially serviced the neighborhood around 1892, but apparently Joel Hurt said the line was running at a loss. He upped the fare to 10 cents. Battle Hill neighbors freaked out. They boycotted. They got the fare lowered back to five. And then in some streetcar drama, Hurt ripped up the tracks in 1893. Now, you have to remember, Westview Cemetery um, was created in 1884, and so streetcar rides, at least out to Westview Cemetery, were very popular, and there were other lines that would kind of get you near the area. In 1896, Battle Hill formally incorporated and they elected a mayor and city council. J.M. Toland took the position as mayor, and the council consisted of Dr. Mosley, Dr. Wilson, E.J. Baker, Lloyd Corsi, and R.L. Adair. So if Mr. Mosley sounds familiar, good, because this is the largest white landowner in the Battle Hill section, and it was his property that became the Mosley Park we know today. Dr. Hiram Harry Mosley fought in the Confederate Army. He lived in St. Louis after the war, but by 1882, he had moved to Atlanta, and by 1886, he owned a pharmacy at the corner of Pryor and Mitchell Streets. 
He was a patent medicine mogul, making most of his fortune off of the Mosley's Lemon Elixir, which treated constipation, foul stomach, sleepiness, melancholy, malaria, fever, and headaches. With this wealth, he built a grand estate on the land that is today the Mosley City Park. And he was the main um, founder, funder, you know, idea man behind the Lakewood Resort. The Mosley House saw both joy and tragedy, hosting the wedding of daughter Pearl in 1896 and then the funeral of his daughter Ruby in 1899. In 1900, the house caught fire and was damaged beyond repair. Dr. Mosley died in 1902, and his heirs inherited all of his land and all of his wealth. So shortly thereafter, the first streets are laid out north to south. So it's like the first bit of real development. And they were connecting Greens Ferry Road, which is today Westview Drive, and Hunter, which is today Martin Luther King Jr. Drive. Racine, Laurel, and Wellington were plotted in 1907, and houses were built as early as 1910. The next streets to be developed ran west to east, so like Church, which now is School Place, Atlanta Avenue, which is now Mim Street, and Elixir Avenue. The first streets pretty much followed the dividing lines of the Mosley heirs, and then there was a Brown family and a Fishback family that owned large tracts of land, so those streets just kind of bordered that. All of this early development in this neighborhood was for white Atlantans. And I talked about this many times, but specifically in the Ashley Ordinance and the zoning episodes, but Black Atlanta was relegated to a small portion of the city, mostly South Atlanta, Summer Hill, and the area around Atlanta University, Morehouse, and Spelman. Ashby Street, which is today Joseph E. Lowry Boulevard, became the commercial center of Black West Side after the turn of the 20th century. And then it also served as a quote-unquote color line until about 1920. So Booker T. Washington High School was built in 1924, and that was one block east of Ashby or the color line. The development of Mosley Park through the 1920s and 30s was exclusively white. In 1922, neighbors petitioned city council to purchase the old Mosley estate, which had been rebuilt after the fire, and turn it into a recreation center and a park. So a park space of some kind existed since at least 1914. They even built a small pool and a boathouse in 1916. But it sounds like it's really in the 20s when it is expanded. And then any kind of Civil War era trenches and earthworks were graded. The park director apparently lived in the old Mosley Mansion. And that house actually stood until 1964. I think it caught fire. In 1923, neighbors begin to ask to rename Battle Hill Elementary to Frank L. Stanton, which was honoring Georgia's first poet laureate. So the issue was um, the Battle Hill Sanatorium was nearby. I talked about that in the Epidemics episode. So there's a lot of confusion between that and the school. Um, They were able to change it, and they actually built a new Frank Lebby Stanton Elementary School in 1927. By 1930, over 37% of the city's African-American population lived on the west side. Hunter Street, like I said earlier, developed into this huge commercial corridor that rivaled and eventually became more popular than Sweet Auburn. Westview Drive was the limit of black settlement, and white residents did not allow black builders to build within 100 yards of Westview. So to emphasize this point, and this blew my mind, all the streets that ran from black neighborhoods into Westview were left unpaved for those 100 yards. 
The expansion, or as White Atlantans called it, the encroachment of Black Atlantans brought out the Confederate memorial groups and the Ku Klux Klan. In 1937, the Margaret Wilson chapter of the Children of the Confederacy erected a temporary marker in Mosley Park, honoring the Battle of Ezra Church. Now, Ezra Church itself was not on this spot, but this is where they wanted to mark it. They placed a wooden marker there, and the plan was to later replace it with a, with a large natural rock that was going to have like a bronze tablet on it. William Hartsfield accepted it on behalf of the city, and Judge John Candler, whose brothers and relatives had fought in the battle, was one of the speakers. In 1939, Melanick and Ethelda Jackson began construction of a house at the corner of MLK Jr. Drive and Chapel Road, or today that's what they're called. Um, it would have been 1396 Hunter Street at the time. Jackson was a Morehouse graduate. Two years prior, he had opened an electrical store on Auburn Avenue, the first Black-owned electrical appliance business in the South. And this house was the closest to the white residential section, and it was too close. So almost immediately, several hundred Klansmen paraded in front of the house, shining flashlights onto it. Um, apparently no other reports of anything except shining flashlights. In January of 1940, the couple moves in and another demonstration is held. This time it's 9.30 p.m., but all the people stayed in their cars, but they lined their cars up all around the house and shined flashlights onto the house again. After World War II, we entered into the housing crisis that I always talk about, and Black leaders in Atlanta were able to get the approval for some further expansion. So the idea is we can go into new kind of self-contained neighborhoods. Segregation was very much still a thing, but there was now a new color line. Instead of being Ashby, it was Westview Drive. The war ended in 1945, and you can see the changes in Mosley Park area begin right after that. In 1946, the Battle Hill Sanatorium petitioned city council to be able to have space for both black and white incurables, quote-unquote. That's what they called people at that time that couldn't care for themselves. In 1948, there was a woman named Mrs. Geneva Jones Allen. She was a black woman who, she says, was deceived by a realtor that told her that the entire block of white families was just about to sell their homes you know, he was going to list them, and so it was safe for her to buy a house on Mosley Place. After entering into the contract, she was threatened by a white community activist named Joe Wallace, and she took the realtor to court to actually be able to legally back out of the deal. And I think in some interview, she's like, you know, I was, I was going to stick it out. I was going to try to live there, but, um, but the intimidation by this neighbor was, was so frightening that she did not want to. In 1949, the Reverend W.W. W. and Lily Witherspool bought a house at 1400 Mosley Place. And within days, a throng of white neighbors, led by Joe Wallace, swarmed the property. The next day, the same crowd, totaling 200 people, stormed into the Capitol building, demanding an audience with Governor Talmadge. Reportedly, Governor Talmadge told the group it was a city issue, and he referred them to Mayor Hartsfield. So the mob turns and walks over to City Hall, where they demanded a meeting with the mayor, and Hartsfield actually, you know, ushered them into a room and promised to, quote, do everything in my power to effect a peaceful solution, end quote. The solution was to form two committees, 
one of black leaders, consisting of C.L. Harper, who was president of the local NAACP, and C.A. Scott of the Daily World. This is just to name a few. And the white committee, who had um, Dr. Clyatt and another than Joe Wallace, like the man who is intimidating neighbors. And I think this was the one committee where black leaders were like, um, so I thought this was be nonpartisan. Like, how is Joe Wallace a nonpartisan choice? But okay. So together they agree on suggested racial boundary lines. It was going to be Chapel Road to the western edge um, for black residents and then the section of Mosley Park between Chapel and Chickamauga to, to the south. And black leaders were clear that they were going to encourage the boundaries, you know, but they couldn't legally do anything. So the final say would have to be between home sellers and home buyers. The other part of the plan was that white neighbors would raise funds to purchase back the homes from black families that were outside of these new boundaries. And the group apparently had already had $1,000, I think it was, saved, and $2,000 pledged in donations. And they did it. They bought back the Witherspool house and then the one right next door at 1406 Mosley Place. The same year, Fulton County Superior Court granted a charter to the Mosley Park Homeowners Protective Association, whose motto was to, quote, establish and maintain harmony and goodwill among the freeholders and residents of the Mosley Park section, end quote. By 1950, they got a little clearer with that mission, and their aim was to, quote, keep Negroes from encroaching on our section, end quote. In 1950, Mayor Hartsfield formed a housing commission, and he asked local black leaders like A.T. Walden, T.M. Alexander, J.W.E. Bowen, W.H. Aiken, Benjamin E. Mays, again, just to name a few, and white leaders, mostly men um, from the West End Business Association, the West End Lions Club, and the Optimist, Kiwanis, and Civitan Clubs. This time around, though, black leaders promised they would not agree to any boundary lines. By 1952, a white couple in Mosley Park, Mr. and Mrs. D.A. McLean, tried to file a temporary restraining order against 11 real estate firms for selling homes to black people um, around a very still majority white Mosley Park. And the judge tosses the suit. He cites federal ruling against residential segregation. But when you read this, the judge is, you know, not saying he doesn't agree with the couple. He's like, listen, the federal government has made this very clear. I cannot rule for this. You know, there's no legal precedent for me to do so. Hartsfield then steps in. He tries to propose building a white housing project and that that would act as a buffer zone. And he wanted a handshake agreement. And black leaders are like, nope, no thanks. We're not going to do this. Later that year, Atlanta Public Schools announced that Stanton Elementary would be switching from black to white by the start of the 1953 school year. There were, at that time, only 80 to 100 white children enrolled, and the school had a capacity for 400. So black neighbors had actually fought to make that happen even sooner because of the extreme overcrowding in their children's schools. The same group also fought for the use of Mosley Park. So even as the neighborhood added more and more black residents, the park remained officially segregated and for whites only. And the city told them, just to hold off that they were building a comparable park in the West End for whites. On April 1st, 1954, Mosley Park space was formally transferred from white to black with a dedication ceremony. 
By the end of the 1950s, Mosley Park had made the full transition from majority white to majority black, the first neighborhood in Atlanta to hold that title, so they say. From 1960 through 1963, Interstate I-20 was built, becoming the southern border. And while the highway system is due for its own episode, a 1960 planning report clearly states the interstate purpose. West of downtown, it would be, quote, a boundary between white and Negro communities, end quote. In the late 1970s, MARTA expanded their rail kind of along the upper portion, like under the railroad tracks, and there's like a bridge now that you can cross over. Today, the neighborhood is experiencing another shift. Um, if you want to say gentrification, there's a lot happening because of its proximity to the Beltline. This is one of my favorite neighborhoods because every single house, large and small, is a who's who of Black Atlanta history. And I know that one side of MLK is considered Hunter Hill, so okay, don't come at me. But just walking down that street alone, you can see the homes of Hank Aaron, the Scott family, um, the Alexander House, the Blatons, preachers, people I'm forgetting. And then the side streets that have smaller houses also have incredibly rich history. And then a lot of these are related to this turbulent 1940s and 50s. The housing stock is also so varied. You can really see things from the 20s, from the 30s, and then even some classic mid-century. So I encourage everyone to go for a walk or a bike ride. If you are not familiar with it, explore Mosley Park for yourself. So there you have it, the story of Mosley Park. Thank you everyone for listening. Remember to leave a rating and or a review. Uh, you can also visit the Patreon link in the show notes to support the podcast. Hope everyone has a great weekend and I'll talk to you next week.